All right. A reading from God's Word this morning. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 7 only this morning. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children... We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Let us pray. Father, now even in this different setting, we know that your Holy Spirit is able to uh, enable us both to hear your word and to faithfully preach your word. And so, Lord, now grant me all that I need. Grant my friends in this room all that they need. And let us together hear your faith we might know you more, love you more, be changed more into the image of your Son, and that our communion between one another might grow, and among one another here, communion between ourselves might grow. Thank you for the ministry of your word. Pour out your spirit, glorify your name, and ask this all for Christ's sake. The text we just read uh, has a very clear and very important central theme as you go through the logic of the text and the details. However, I think it's probably good for me to just give you the central and main idea kind of theme or main idea thought from the get-go in case I bore you with some of the details. Um, in case uh, you just check out for some reason on me. So let me go ahead and put it in three succinct statements. Three concise statements. The main idea that we get, you need to keep in mind as we go through the text. Alistair Begg once said that if you're a married minister and your wife poked you in the middle of the night and it was Saturday night, that you should be able to wake up and say exactly what you're going to preach on in about two sentences. And, uh, you know, and he said that's very true and helpful. So I'm trying. So here we go. Um, once... We were slaves, now we are sons, and it's ridiculous to think of going back to being slaves. That's the idea of the text. Once we were slaves, now we're sons, and it's ridiculous to think of ever wanting to go back to being slaves. You see, the story so far as Paul has been describing it goes this way. God gave to a man named Abraham a promise. The promise was that his seed, his offspring, would come and bless all the nations of the world. 
And then in later time, God gave to Moses, a man named Moses, a law. And the law of Moses did not nullify the promise made to Abraham, but instead the law underscored just how important the promise really was. Then, as last week and this week's text show, God fulfilled his promise made to Abram through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so that those who, seeing their sin when confronted by the law of Moses, might be drawn to Christ and discover all the blessings that accompany the gospel promise made to Abraham. Now that's the story so far as Paul has talked to us. And it is it's essentially the message of Galatians 3 that we just exited in our studies on Sunday morning. We, we saw all of the story arc of God giving a promise to Abram, God giving a law to Moses, the later work of giving a law to Moses didn't nullify the promise of God. Most, uh, Abraham was justified by faith alone in the promise. The law was just added because of transgressions to show us that the promise was what we needed to underscore the significance of what that promise was going to do, namely meet the demands of God's law for us. Now, today, we need to think of our text moving out of 3 into 4 in a way that is befitting the original material of the Bible. And what I mean by that is when the letter to the Galatians was written, it was not written with chapter and verse divisions in it. So we need not think of going in from chapter 3 to chapter 4 with a gap in between. We need to remember that uh, Paul is going to very clearly link the links his thought from the end of 3 into his thought beginning in chapter 4. Matter of fact, there's two words that show us that that's the case, and it's the continued use of the word guardian and the continued use of the word heir. So that's what he was talking about. The law is a guardian, and people who believe Christ is heirs of God, and he's going to elaborate on what those things mean in today's text. So he's continuing his flow of thought. He's not ending at full stop, chapter 3, new thoughts, Chapter 4, we need to go through the divisions that we've added and realize that Paul now is basically going to illustrate that which he has just said at the ending of 3. And he's going to elaborate specifically upon this concept of an heir, or heirdom, sometimes it's called. Um, and uh, the uh, first two verses, verses 1 and 2, are going to serve as his illustration for that concept of error. And then he's going to, in verses 3 and 4, interpret his own illustration. And then uh, finally, in verses 5 through 7, he's going to give us some implications for those who are heirs of God through Christ along with Abraham. But um, So that's going to be your, your, your outline for, for this. Um, but first, before we even... Um, deal with the illustration itself, we need to deal with this concept of what it means to be an heir. And let's just read verse 1 and see that that word's there and see that we need to deal with that. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, this illustration 
and this talk from Paul of an heir is something that would be quite familiar to his original audience, to the Galatians, because it was part of the cultural milieu, as they say, of his day, that when boys became men, especially in wealthier homes, there would, at least among the Greeks, be a significant moment where that would be marked. I think with the Greeks, you were under the custodialship of your parents as a child from 7 to 18. And then at 18 years old, you were forced to military service for two years, and then you were set out on your own as an adult. But at the 18th mark, there would be a big celebration. The, the father of the family would, would do something where he would declare you an adult. Amongst the Romans, there was also a quote-unquote coming-of-age ceremony. And it wasn't a certain actual uh, chronological moment in time or a date in your life or a birthday. It was uh, when the father saw fit to see that you were a man. And the boys, until they were declared men by their fathers in the Roman Rite, would uh, wear a white toga. And on the white toga would be scarlet uh, trim around the hem, and it marked that they were still boys. But when the father decided to have the Roman feast called Liberalia, uh, he would uh, declare his son a man to the family and to others in his uh, particular religion, and the boy would receive an entirely white robe, and he'd be marked as a man. Paul, even in his day and in his context, you know, he probably had something close to what we now understand as the bar mitzvah, right, because Paul was Jewish, and still to this day, Jewish boys know when they become men, because there's a moment where their entire faith community, along with their family, declares them having passed from the custodial minority uh, era of their lives into adulthood at that moment of bar mitzvah. And uh, so Paul is, is, is against that cultural background and out of that milieu, as I said, he's grabbing that kind of a reality and turning it into an illustration here to speak of spiritual matters in the context of God's work of salvation and the covenants that he's been speaking of in the text. And so it was very familiar to them, and I think maybe to us, Eridim isn't made much of in our 21st century America. We don't really have a coming-of-age ceremony that much, unless maybe you were raised as a Jewish uh, American. But um, Paul does uh, deal with it quite clearly. And I think most of our views of heirdom today probably come from Downton Abbey or something you know, like that, where we think that uh, there's a boy born in this lordly English manner and what's his name? What are his nannies on? You know, there's all these maids and servants in these large English houses. And what are the maids and the nannies called him? Uh, usually something like Lord so-and-so, right? And why do they call him that? Well, he's the heir to the estate in which they serve as servants, as nannies, as maids. And in fact, he owns it all. He will receive the estate. It's his by legal rights. However, it's not his in actual possession yet. Why? Because the, the father is still alive, right? He still has the power over the resources and everything that's inherent to the everyday life of the estate. And the boy, so in legal terms, the boy is Lord de jour, but he's not yet Lord de facto. He, yes, owns everything. He is 
Lord, whoever he is. But he is not yet developed, ready, and capable of running the estate. Therefore, he's under managers, he's under maids, he's under servants. We're going to tell him how to behave, when to dress, where to go, how to act, what to think, so that he might be developed and prepared for the full rights of his heirdom or sonship one day when he actually possesses the whole shebang in fact and not just in potential. Now, Paul uses that kind of an idea and he applies it into the context that we've been studying here in Galatians. And I think we're more postured with those thoughts that I just gave you to think about, or think through rather, this illustration itself. Um, we find in verse 1 that it says, The heir, though he is a child, is not free. Really, there's two things that Paul says about these heirs. He says that they're, they're limited in their rights. They're limited in their rights. When we were just children, we didn't have the full rights of our potential lives one day, did we? Because why? Well, we, we were children. We, we, we were restricted. And whenever you think of children and their development and restrictions on them, you, you immediately start thinking of the teenage years. And because that's when they're, they're approaching adulthood, at least it's supposed to be. And uh, what happens? They feel their restrictedness. They feel that they're still minors in that period of their lives. And so what do they do? They start to rebel. They start to buck or at least, you know, fight against their restrictions because they want freedom. They want greater freedom. They see it's on the horizon. And uh, however, at that point, they are no different from slaves, Paul says. And though we are going to possess that which our adult lives are going to give to us, we don't have it for a while. We feel very restricted. And so did these heirs and these homes and these uh, first century settings. They really appeared to be slaves. They were told where to go, what to do, what to, you know, what to eat, all these things. Their behavior would be uh, looked over, verse 2, under guardians and managers until a date set by the Father. And so we... Prior to our coming to Christ, we're like this. Now, someone will ask, uh, if they're really thinking through this text, okay, if, if, if Paul is applying that minority reality to our lives as Christians, prior actually to becoming Christians, so we weren't Christians yet, right? Paul is talking about that period of life between uh, existing and then being converted. That period, the, the, the pre-conversion us, the non-Christian us, and then the post-Christian us. And he's saying that period between before conversion to conversion was a period of being an heir who was in fact a slave because he did not yet receive his sonship. He did not yet receive what he, would going, what he was going to inherit and to be the Lord de facto over it. And some people immediately start to scratch their heads and say, wait a minute, Paul. If we were heirs, but we did not have Christ and we did not know him, how in the world would we have known that we were heirs? Well, you didn't. And that's not what the text tells us, right? That you knew. No, Paul just tells them that that was the case, that they were heirs. 
And remember, this word heir is not being brought out of nowhere into Galatians 4. It comes over from Galatians 3. And in the context of Galatians 3, you have God talking about covenants. And in those covenants, what has God, what has God revealed? Well, God has revealed that He has had a plan from before the ages began to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, to give Him nations that would come from Him. And, and remember, that's Galatians 3.16, you need to remember. Go back to Galatians 3.16 in your mind, and, or in your Bibles, and look that, uh, that Paul clearly says that the promises that were made to Abraham were made to Abraham and his offspring. And that offspring that was spoken of was singular, Christ. In Galatians 3.16, Christ is the one promised, as it is revealed in the Abrahamic covenant, to have peoples for himself that would come to him as his inheritance. And for those of you who are tracking as you study theology, there's the link between covenants and Calvinism. There's the link between election and God's divine plan hidden in himself uh, for ages until it was revealed in the gospel. You see the connection? I think you do. God in times past promised Jesus he would have a people. Therefore, there must have been a people who are infallibly chosen to come to him in order for the Father to keep his promise. The pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption, assures the salvation of all of those people who are promised to Christ. Jesus again and again John chapter 17, Father, of all those whom you have given me out of the world. The church is a love gift to the Lord Jesus Christ from the Father. She's his bride, and the Father has gotten her for him. He is giving, he is giving him away to her. And here Paul understands that every soul that will eventually believe and become the heirs of of, of faith along with Abraham, it all rests on that. That though we had no idea prior to our conversion, though we were living in the darkness and complete folly of our sins cut off from God, we were heirs because God had fixed a date set by the Father wherein we would be called from darkness to light and inherit something very glorious that that Paul is fixing to speak about. I mean, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And I'm going to get to verse 2, but let's see the connection of all this is to Christians prior to their conversion in verse 3. In the same way we, also when we were a.k.a. spiritual Myers children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so we see that Paul is definitely taking this truth and he's connecting it to us, showing that we were the ones who were heirs in a spiritual minority. But that one day, in a date fixed by the Father, we would go from slavery to the ABCs of God's law the full rights of sons. And that's where this is going next in verse 2. Verse 2 again, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And as we said in the Roman world, Greek world, and even in the Jewish world of Paul's day when he was teaching that there was a coming of age ceremony where 
boys would become men. And um, here, though, we must understand that in back in chapter 3, the word guardian, pedagogos, was a word that was given to the law. It was a descriptive referent for the law of God. And so the guardian here and the managers here are the law of God in verse 2. And the law of God managed us, directed us, brought us, in a sense, to see our need for Christ. The managers and the guardians and the stewards of these heirs and these lordly estates were used to correct the child's behavior, increase the child's knowledge and education, and train the child to start thinking like the Lord instead of just as a foolish child who had no dignity or status. So the law of God worked in our lives prior to our conversion. It brought us to the ends of ourselves, trained us. If God was operating with His Spirit through His Word and His law, it trained us to see our need for Christ and how we could not save ourselves. The law was meant to exhaust us and exasperate us, much like good training exhausts and exasperates a person who undergoes it. Those of you who are in the military, you can say amen. <laughs> so the law worked this way in our lives. However, we're going to hear that Paul's not only talking individually. It's very clear from verse 3 that he's talking to individuals, people who were saved out of darkness to light. But it's also very clear that Paul is talking corporately of God's big scheme of salvation and plan for the world. Remember, the covenants of chapter 3 have to do with the public historia salutis, as we call it, the history of salvation. God, as the psalmist said at the beginning of our liturgy as we opened up this morning, working salvation in the midst of the earth. God historically working out his divine plan over time. And Paul here shows that all of the people of God, since Abraham, the people of Israel, all the people of God from Abraham on were given law, right? Why? So that they might be directed to Christ, not think of themselves as able to save themselves, but instead they were to be cast upon the promise. And so for individuals who were lost, cut off from God, the law trained us to go to Christ. It showed us our sin. Remember last week I said it's a mirror, the law is. You don't look at it to get anything. You look at it to see everything. And what you see is your ugly moral face, disfigured, looking back at you. And you need someone else to change the you so that what you see in the there is different. And that's what the law was meant to do. And notice, Paul says, when we were in that period of time, verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were slaves to the elementary principles of the world. Elementary principles of the world. Do you know the law of God functions like the ABCs of God's revelation to people? The law is the first word that we learn of God, right? We learn that God is righteous. We should not then do this. We should not do this. We should not do this. And that's the Ten Commandments, right? And I'm getting it. However, we don't need to stay with the ABCs of God's revelation. We need to move on to knowing the full alphabet and language of His revelation, which has to do fundamentally with the promise of God and how it relates to His law. 
The law acted in a way to teach us the ABCs of righteousness. But verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. There's the full word and revelation of God to us is namely the gospel. And that's where the law was meant to bring us. Now, I will back up just a moment because those of you who are theologians or buddy theologians in this room will know that there's a textual variant uh, inherent to the end of uh, verse 3 when it says elementary principles. You know that some of your Bibles in the English language translate it as actually elemental spirits. Have you seen that in other versions on verse 3? Um, and so people look at the Greek word stoichiemiai, something like that, and they say, <laughs> you know, Ryan, it can be translated as elemental spirits of the world. We were enslaved to spirits. Or it can be translated as the word principles. Which is it? The answer is it's both. It's both. Because we need to understand that though Paul's audience was pagan before their conversion, they were in bondage to the law as much as any Jew ever was. And likewise, the Jew, though he be not a pagan, and he comes to Christ, he was as much in bondage to idols and false gods as the pagan was. Both is true of both parties. And how can I say that? The operating principle of all false religion is an operating principle of works for righteousness. Think of it. The false gods, you had to appease them, follow their rules, no matter how made up those rules were by your own tribe, and if you appeased the god and lived the life, you would be blessed. A false view of the law of the true god, however, runs on the same principle. If you believe that you are justified by the law, that you can use the law in a do-this-and-live scenario, of please God through your doing, get His blessing, well, then there you go. You're just as, you're just as wrong as the pagans are. And I think this church can handle this. The reason a Jew and a pagan meet in that karma-type setup is because Romans 2, verses 14 and 15 says the work of God's law is written on the hearts of all men, whether or not they have the codified law of Moses to touch and know or not. You see, all of humanity meets in the place when it comes to their native spiritual bent to wanting to please God through self-righteousness and self-justification. And so Paul uses a word in the Greek at the end of three that could go either way. Do good and you'll get good. That's just the natural way of thinking about humanity and its relationship to God. And it's an entirely false, detrimental, and lethal way to think about God. One preacher told another preacher one day that God only loved good little boys and good little so so wrong there's no way man can earn favor with God instead 
This is God's plan. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. There are so many glories in this verse. The law was given to point the people of Israel to Christ. The law is given on the hearts of men to point us all to Christ. And then the fullness of time, and that actually is the same word for time and fullness that goes back to the top of the passage, to the verse 2, to the date, the time set by the Father. You see, all that period of time between the promise given really all the way back to Adam and Eve in Galatians 3.15, recapitulated aloud to Abraham in Genesis 15, and then carried on in the covenants of promise all the way through David to Malachi. All of that period of time was a time wherein the law and the, was setting the stage for the Messiah to come. And so in the fullness of time, and literally in the Greek, at just the right time, God sent forth the promised Son who was pointed to in all of the old covenants. And when this Son was given, He was born of a woman. He was born under law. Now, the Greek here for God sent forth is explicit. It literally means God sent him from where he was before. It is a clear reference in the Greek to the pre-existence of Jesus prior to Bethlehem. To him being the logos of God, the second person of the divine head being sent down into time from God. And as he is sent, he is born of the woman. There's the allusion to Genesis 3.15. Remember, that's the seed promise first given in the proto-gospel. But he's also born under the law. Now, we who were under the law misused it to be self-saviors. He came under the law to keep it and to become our Savior. That's very clear to what Paul's saying here. He's he was born of a woman, the promise fulfilled. Born under the law, law fulfilled. Now he's going to do what? He's going to redeem those who were under the law. Now that we're redeemed, literally to be purchased out of slavery is what the Greek means. You see, we were slaves. We kept by nature misusing the law. We were restricted in our resources. We did not become what we knew we needed to become and we found out we had no power to do so. But then Christ entered the scene. And what happened? He did all that we could not do for ourselves in order that He might buy us out of the slavery we were in and bring us into a new standing or state and status before God. He redeemed those who were under the law and if the text stopped there, we could go home. But it doesn't. Redemption was wrought by Christ from the Father for a purpose. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ redeemed you, not just to buy you out of slavery and to send you on your way bye-bye, Christ redeemed you, and yes, you could praise Him forever for that. But He redeemed you to take you not only out of slavery, 
but to put you in the arms of a father. What kind of redemption is this? That it takes us who were slaves trying to make our own righteousness and usher in our own little eschaton privately in our own motley covenant of works that we all naturally create as humans in our sinfulness, defying God, doing it our own way, not needing Him, acting as if you know He doesn't exist and His demands and His dictates don't matter. This God then sends us a law that shows us He matters, we need Him, stop the foolishness. And there's one coming, and then He came. And He did what we can't do for ourselves. And as we're led by the Spirit of God, what do we do? We surrender to Him. Because He purchased us with His death out of, our, out of our slavery, out of all that foolishness, out of all that pride. And then what happens when we find ourselves believing upon Him? We find ourselves in the arms of the Father. We receive adoption as sons. Jesus came here to redeem us so that we could be kin to Him. He didn't redeem us just so that, you know, I mean, He's glorified, obviously, for His death. But he redeemed us so that we could know the heart of the Father. So that we could see who it is that planned this whole scheme that Ryan's been talking about this morning. Who loves us. Who he sent his son into the world because he himself loves us, the Father. I, think it was, I don't remember who said it. But someone in my past told me this. They said, Ryan, most... Homes are broken these days in one way or the other. Regular, everyday families. But in a house where the father is a father, like the Bible calls a father to be, that's a microcosm of heaven. Because you see, in heaven, there's only the father and all of his children. God has no grandchildren. God directly adopts into his family everyone he redeems. Jesus alone stands as the human of heaven with a crown that's eternal and divine upon his head because he was the redeemer sent originally from God. And as a human, he has won his right, Jesus the man, to sit upon his Father's throne. Remember Jesus said that? Revelation 3, I overcame and sat down on my Father's throne. And then what does he say? If you overcome, you get the right to sit with me on my throne. Well, who's Jesus' throne? It's the Father's throne. You see the intimate closeness that God has brought us into as Christians. We think often in contemporary reform circles today, in terms of justification by faith alone. But what about the terms of adoption by grace alone? What about the terms of God calls me son, or God calls me daughter, and that's what he wanted the entire time in my life? So many people stay aloof from God because of that very fact. And the reason they do so is they can't get past the horror of their childhood and what they experienced from their father or from a lack thereof in their lives. Yet they know deep on the inside 
that their childhood was not supposed to be that way. There's some divine transcendent thought and longing to, to have an idyllic childhood with a good father because that's the way you know in your heart it was supposed to be. And why was it supposed to be that way? Because the true father of all living spirits, the father of the church, is the idyllic father who desperately wants you in his family. So desperate, in fact, that he sent Jesus to the earth and destroyed him on the cross that you might be in his family. God sent his royal darling, the Lord Jesus Christ, who had been praised in perfect purity by all angels for all ages. God sent him to the earth and God hurled all of his divine wrath at him so that you might be God's son or God's daughter. We need this doctrine of adoption so desperately today. All of our familial ills, they won't go away the sight of heaven and the damage thereof. But friends, if this doctrine is at the center of your heart and you remember that as you grip the wheel of your car to leave this place, you leave it God's kid. And as you remember that, suddenly, all of that gaping pain, and I have it from my childhood, suddenly you're okay. Not everything's going to go away, but suddenly you have a love that is so superlative and wonderful that it acts like a ballast in the shipping tip of your soul when those emotions creep back in and grip your heart and say, I wish it was different. I wish it was different. I'm God's. I'm adopted. I am loved. I will be okay. It will be idyllic one day. When we see this, we see why Paul would take pains to communicate this to them with very complicated, complex thoughts here. And then he says, you know what? Not just one day, but today you've received the full rights of sonship. That's what he says here. And because, verse 6, you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He doesn't just give you the legal status of sons. He gives you the Spirit of His Son in your heart, whereby you experience your sonship in this life through the Holy Spirit. Notice the Spirit of Christ is inside of you, not whispering, but crying out, Abba, Father. We saw this in Jesus' life. Remember when he came to the garden, that last garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, for him in his life. What did he do as soon as his knees hit the, hit the dirt of that garden? Bible's clear, Abba is the word he used. It was a word for him and intimacy towards God. And this is the first implication we have here in the text, in verse 6. What does our sonship mean for us? We have the intimate access that Jesus has to God the Father. This is the kind of intimacy. This word for Abba, 
I even know very good men who stand in pulpits even this morning who say, I don't like it when people say that that word means daddy. That's too intimate with God. Friends, I can't help but greatly disagree with those good men. I believe that every child of God, God is close to, that He loves Him, and that they have direct access to His heart. At any time, we have to but cry to Him. And the Spirit of God inside of us carries those cries before the throne of grace. And what does God say to His people in the book of Hebrews? There is help. And there is mercy when you come to the throne of grace in your hour of need. I think the Father is very close. I think this word Abba does mean Daddy. It means Papa, maybe more like it, but still. You don't ruin the transcendence of God by pouring your heart out before Him. These men are so afraid of being too familiar with God. Friends, that's the glory of the gospel. It's total familiarity with God, not in comprehensive knowledge. Only God knows God comprehensively. But as far as relational knowledge, we have it all. We can know Him closely, perfectly. What do you think heaven's going to be? Getting to know our Father more and more and more. Because He never ends. Praise God that we can't know God comprehensively. There's always a new glory to find out about. And this is what Jesus has purchased for us. Redeemed that we might be adopted. So intimacy. First implication we have. We see it there clearly in the words of verse 6. Verse 7. So then you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir through God. There's still, the second implication is there's still a future inheritance. What's an heir other than someone who has an inheritance? That's why it's called an heir. And if I were to take the time this morning to walk you through verse after verse that speaks about inheritance and what we will have, we would be here for a long time, so I'm going to give you that as homework. However, it's a good Lord's Day homework to do. And I want to say a kind word, especially to those of you who are aging. Please do this. <laughs> Mark's looking for who I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, but for those of you who are aging, look up what the inheritance of the saints is and realize that the best is yet to come. All that was behind is never going to be as best as what's ahead for a Christian, even for those of you who are younger. What's to come will take your breath away when you actually read about it and ask the Spirit to bring it upon your heart. My father's 65 years old, and when we talk about death, he talks about it with a tone of anticipation. He knows he's closer to meeting Jesus in the flesh. And he knows who loves him. I think one of the most encouraging conversations I had with Dad was he was talking to me about all the pain and the trials of being older. And, uh, excuse me, um, that was gross to watch me cry. But um, he said, you know, son, there's all this stuff that's happened in the last decade. But my God loves me. And I get to see him soon. That's what my dad said. And um, 
There it is. There's the point I made earlier. That the love of God is so strong that you can face death with that kind of confidence. Now, we might not be there fully in our experience yet, and don't be bothered by that, beloved. We grow in our sense of the love of God as we go. You might hear this today and say, Ryan, I want to be more impacted by divine love. It doesn't sound like I am. Well, that's great. The Father loves to pour out His Spirit on His children and to help them grow. Paul prayed for the Ephesian church. And you can think about this prayer as you think about applying this message. Paul told the church at Ephesus to pray that they might be strengthened with all might. That was actually Colossae, excuse me. He told the, the church at Ephesus, he's praying that they might be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, what is the length, what is the breadth. I think I forgot width. There's another if in there somewhere. Death. Of depth of the love of God. That they might have strength to comprehend it. Because it really is hard to comprehend that God loves us as amazingly as this passage just told us either. And so we pray for strength to comprehend that. For God to enlarge our hearts. What did David mean when he prayed for that often in the Psalms? Lord, enlarge my heart. What David meant was, I want to have a greater capacity for receiving your love and loving you back. That should be our prayer every day of our lives. God, my, my mind is awake. I'm still in this world. I'm not home this morning. Enlarge my heart now. Because, Father, I need you. And I want you. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that in your good providence you have given us such a text this morning. We feel dislocated from our building, unsure about so much stuff, not just in the corporate life of our church, but in our individual lives, about the future. I know I have my questions. One thing we do not have to question. We're yours. Thank you for loving us with an everlasting love that we did not require and therefore we do not maintain in order to keep. But Jesus keeps us and he energizes our love for you. He exemplifies how we are to love you. And he helps us to use your law rightly to spell out our obedient love to you. And so, Lord, may we grow in the grace and the love of Christ. Father, that you might be more near to us than we've ever imagined and experienced before. And that you might be more dear to us than ever before. And that into the eternal day we ask it in Jesus' name.